0: And now, here's your host, Sean Rost.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guide to explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. Today's episode continues our multi-part series on border wars, a detailed examination of the conflicts that define Missouri's borders and boundaries, as well as the state's role in the Civil War and its aftermath. Our guest today is Benjamin Park. He holds a PhD in history from the University of Cambridge. He also served as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Missouri's Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy. Presently, he serves as an assistant professor of history at Sam Houston State University in Texas. His book, Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier, was published by W.W. Norton live in February 2020. Welcome to R Missouri, Ben. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now walk us through really the origins of this book project and how it all came to be.
2: Ironically, I was in Missouri when I first thought of this book. I was teaching as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Missouri's Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy. And I'd long maintained interest in Mormon history. It was actually my first uh, uh, gateway into the historical profession, but I'd set it aside and worked on other projects. And then in 2016, that LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, released a series of documents that had been uh, uh, sequestered from historical access ever since our creation. These documents that Joseph Smith's uh, closest followers created in the last few months of his life when they organized a new council that they believed would be, uh, govern the world that they called the Council of 50. And this this concept, the Council of 50, or this organization had long maintained that this huge uh, legendary status in historical circles, or at least historical circles that deal with Mormonism, but we'd never been able to get access to the most important documents related to it until in 2016 that these minutes were released. And while I was teaching at the University of Missouri, I was invited to uh, get an, uh, an early pre-published copy of those minutes and write a bit about it uh, for, for a national magazine for when they came out. And when I read those minutes, not only was I thrilled that these texts that had, I had long dreamed about reading were finally there, but when I was reading it, I immediately discovered that there was a deeper history of behind these minutes, that they reflected, in, in my mind, what I call uh, the democratic discontent that was pretty pervasive in antebellum America, meaning that here was a, a n- large number of people gathered together who believed that democracy had failed. And that's a concept I had been familiar with studying democracy during the early period, that it was not the shoe in for success that we kind of take for granted today. But here was one of the most potent expressions of that broader anxiety. And so I immediately thought, you know what? I wanna write a book that kind of tells the the origin story that leads to Joseph Smith and a number of other Mormon leaders to conclude That democracy was a failed experiment and it was time for something new. And that's where I decided I was going to write about what came to be known as Kingdom of Nauvoo.
1: Now, you kind of touched on there, obviously, with the kind of new materials that were available. You know, the first time scholars are getting a chance to really uh, examine them in a present day context. In addition to that, you know, what materials are you looking at, primary source materials? You know, what archives are you visiting to kind of find the research for the story. What sites are you visiting nationwide to really kind of examine this story of Nauvoo?
2: Yeah, so there are a number of archives that hold really important materials for this project. Um, For the Nauvoo period, and Nauvoo was located on the uh, Illinois side of the Mississippi River, um, Mormons were a very good record keeping people. They kept lots of diaries, they kept their letters, they had minute books. And so the LDS Church, now located out in Salt Lake City, Utah, um, actually has a huge and beautiful uh, library and archive. Um, And they've been, especially in recent years, increasingly generous in gaining access, including with the Council of 50 Minutes. So I actually spent two summers um, out in Utah going plumbing through all those archives. And I think at one point, because I kept the, uh, the call slip receipts from whenever you request primary resource, I think I, I requested 195 different source collections over the course of these two summers uh, to kind of be the backbone. But that wasn't the only archive. Um, The Abraham Lincoln Museum in Springfield, Illinois, also houses uh, Illinois State Archive materials, so I was able to get lots there, especially newspapers. Uh, The Abraham Lincoln Museum is phenomenal, uh, is a phenomenal collection for Illinois area newspapers. up at uh, Western Illinois University, they used to have an archivist by the name of, of, of Roger Hallwas, who was a wonderful historian, and he was focused on Mormon Nauvoo. So he had collected lots of documents and in, in uh, over there. Perhaps most surprisingly, the, the Beinecke Library at Yale uh, has a huge Mormon collection, uh, mostly because there is a historian associated with Yale uh, way back in the 1930s and 40s who really scoured the nation to collect lots of uh, primary sources related to early Mormonism. And so the Beinecke, uh, uh, any chance you get get to go spend time at the Beinecke Library, which is one of the most gorgeous archives in America, you got to do it. So I was fortunate to go spend some time out there. And then finally, um, so many of the sources related to Nauvoo are now digitized, uh, especially those held by the LDS church. Uh, whether it be the Josna Papers project, which is a scholarly endeavor to gather and reproduce and contextualize all the documents related to Mormonism's founder, Joseph Smith, um, all of those are digitized, and the LDS Church History uh, Library and Archives digitizes on average several hundred documents a day And so I was able to do a lot of research during the school year, while I would travel to archives during the summer, but during the school year, I was able to research lots and lots of digitized sources, um, which is just a a great example of the type of world we live in today.
1: That's amazing to think about that many materials being digitized on a regular basis. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, With the kind of the, the movement into Nauvoo, obviously there is a long story even before that point. So walk us through the the migration, the movement of of Mormons from kind of the start with Joseph Smith in Western New York all the way into what is today Missouri.
2: Yeah. So Joseph Smith was born and raised uh, in the American East first in the New England area. And then when he was a teenager, his family moved out to uh, upstate New York, Palmyra region and uh, There he was caught up with what we now refer to as a second great awakening, which was a string of revivals and religious fervor that spread across America, especially uh, in upstate New York, which they came to refer to as the burned over district because the the rhetoric of these discourses were so fiery that they singed the earth beneath them. Uh, When he was a teenager, Joe Smith claimed that he had a a, a divine encounter uh, where God and Jesus Christ gave him a new directive and that Told me he was going to be a new prophet. Within a few years, uh, he has another series of of, of visitations from, from angels, and that, that he claimed led him to uh, sacred records. Um, one of these records uh, resulted in what we now call as the Book of Mormon, which they claim was a scriptural account of the ancient inhabitants of the New World, uh, and that's why where they get the Mormon uh, nickname. That Book Mormon was published in 1830 and a week later, Joseph Smith organized his closest followers surrounded a new church that they at first just called the Church of Christ. Uh, But even early on, they received lots of external opposition for a number of reasons. Uh, One, even though it was a very robust religious marketplace in early America, Most of the religions that succeeded were those that were willing to fit within the traditional boundaries of what a religion should look like, which by the 1820s and 1830s was white Protestant, um, especially enthusiastic and democratic. And that's why the Baptists and the Methodists were exploding in population. And the Mormons were seen as challenging some of those uh, traditional Moors. And so they were evicted out of New York, evicted out of Pennsylvania, where they were shortly. And then they set up two Uh, primary hubs, one in Kirtland, Ohio near Cleveland, and the other out in Missouri, uh, present day uh, uh, Kansas City. It was Jackson County. And when they went out there in 1831, Joseph Smith declared that that land was Zion, meaning that it was God's chosen land that was going to be the center place for when God returns during the millennium, granting this very sacred power uh, to, you know, the, the rugged world of the frontier, because in 1831, Jackson County uh, independence was the Western spot in America as, as far as, as white uh, uh, civilization went. And it was just beyond there that they were evicting and forcing all the indigenous populations. And so very quickly, lots of Mormons flowed into that Missouri settlement because they saw it as, you know, this, very, this great sacred space with a, a prominent future. Uh, But it turns out that when you move into an already existing uh, community where there were lots of neighbors who don't share the Mormon faith, it turns out that if you move into that type of space and start acting like you own the place and start making bold statements that God has given us this land and eventually you're going to either have to convert or get out of here. And even more so, you move into that land, you bring different values and interests, which a lot of northerners who the Mormons were, were bringing with them to uh, western Missouri where a lot of southerners were were moving, you're going to have some cultural clashes. So within a couple years, the Mormons were kicked out of Jackson County, uh, evicted uh, as Missouri was trying to figure out what to do with them. And so Missouri was struggling like, On the one hand, this is a land of liberty. You're supposed to allow anyone of different religious groups and different backgrounds to be able to settle where you wish. But on the other hand, these are groups that are having lots of conflict. So how are we going to settle this? This is actually a primary question of democracy. How do you assimilate different groups who have fundamentally different interests and values? Missouri decided that their solution to the problem was to create a county for the Mormons, uh, which they did up north. Uh, They said, we'll give you your own county, you stay there. And I think it's important to to note the context of that. That's the same time that America is basically doing the same thing with Native Americans, forming their own reservations to to kick them out of the land which the white Americans wanted and evict them elsewhere. Same solution was offered for the Mormons. They're not going to assimilate into, uh, you know, mainstream American culture. We're going to give them their own space. But when they're settled in their new Mormon county, that only lasted for a couple of years. And by 1838, we get what we call the the Mormon-Missouri War, which actually came to guns and violence and massacres and uh, eventually the Mormons being kicked out. And that's what eventually led them settling in Illinois once they got kicked out of Missouri.
1: And that region, that that part of the state you're referring to with their own county, that
2: was Caldwell County, right? Far west is the area. Caldwell what? County was the name of the county and far west was the, was the capital city.
1: And for just an idea, how big is that county in terms of population as the Mormons are moving into that?
2: How do they take over that county? I mean, does it spread out into other counties? Caldwell County was mostly vacant. There are a few uh, small patches of settlers, but in general, it was vacant, which is why they gave it to the Mormons, because no one was already there. The problem with Jackson County, they believe, was Mormons moved into an already existing community. No, let's let them, you know, start from scratch, you know, tame the wilderness. And so they send them up to Caldwell County, and they very quickly, uh, you know, build as a city in far west that contained several, th- a couple thousand people within a few months. And so it was, it was a very rapidly developing project.
1: Now, one of the reasons why there is the, the move to Nauvoo is really the handling of, of the Mormon situation by Missouri's governor, Low-born Boggs, at the time. How does he react to Mormonism in the state? And, and how does he contribute to this forced movement out of the state?
2: Yeah, so Lilburn Boggs, at first the Mormons supported him. Ironically, some of Lilburn Boggs' first campaign materials uh, in the Jackson County area were printed on the Mormon press because the Mormons had the only press in the area. Uh, But soon Lilburn Boggs uh, became a a sworn enemy of the Mormons. And in 1838, uh, the Mormons who had just been kicked out of Ohio, which was their other settlement at the time, were facing a number of problems. They believed that they were having lots of dissenters within their community cause problems and they wanted to evict them. And they also had felt that by this time, we'd been kicked out of New York, we've been kicked out of Pennsylvania, we've just been kicked out of Ohio. We don't wanna be kicked out anymore. So they became increasingly bold and and, uh, uh, strong in their stance in 1838 saying that we are in this place, we're not gonna move. Sidney Rigdon, who is kind of the second most powerful man in the church and Joseph Smith's uh, counselor, even declared at a sermon that summer that those who bring their problems against us, it shall be a war of extermination between us and them. Uh, That's not something that's going to win you over a lot of friends. Uh, However, they say this because they felt that they had been persecuted at every step of the way, and they started seeing themselves as indirectly uh, opposite or countering uh, the the existing state, and Lilburn Boggs took them up on it. Lilburn Boggs believed that these Mormons are going to be nuisances, and so when words got out that the Mormons and their uh, neighbors were getting into further skirmishes that late summer and fall of 1838, Lilburn Boggs Uh, very quickly decides which side he's going to come down on. And he issues an executive order uh, that uh, declared that the Mormons uh, are are, uh, a threat to our democracy, and they should be treated as nuisances and either exterminated or driven from the state. Um, Those are bold words. And in fact, that that executive order remained on the Missouri books until the 1970s, although thankfully it was never really evoked. Uh, And so the Mormons, when they were evicted from the state of Missouri, Joseph Smith and others believed that Lilburn Boggs was directly to blame because he's the one that not only allowed the mobs to attack them, but had even encouraged the mobs and, and said that the Mormons as nuisances should be exterminated.
1: Now, something that's quite striking if you look at a map is the location of Nauvoo. As the Mormons are moving out of Missouri, they're kind of situating themselves there in Illinois right on the Mississippi River uh, on a way that kind of juts out ever so slightly into the river. And yet, considering all the what happened in Missouri, it's it's kind of interesting to think about you know, the terminology as the crow flies or as the bird flies, Nauvoo is only maybe 10, 15 miles from Missouri. I mean, there's a little bit of Iowa there, but Missouri is right there as well. So considering what had just happened, you know, what was appealing about Nauvoo or at that time called commerce, you know, what was was driving them to that location, even being not too far away from Missouri?
2: Yeah, mostly practical circumstances. So when the Mormons were kicked out of Missouri in the, in the winter of 1838 into 1839, they were, you know, forced from their homes. They didn't have many provisions. Many were wandering the Missouri countryside that cold winter trying to find a, a place to stay. And they were able to uh, uh, take up, uh, get help just across the Mississippi River in Illinois. Um, and Illinois offered them refuge, Illinois offered them help, they offered them uh, support, and uh, the Mormons took them up on it. And the reason why they settled on Nauvoo up the river was no one else wanted that land. This, this was almost a peninsula uh, budding out in the Mississippi River, as you said. Theoretically, it should be a great outpost because you have a wonderful place where, you know, ships can stop and and trade goods. And as the Mississippi River is the life vein of the new expanding American economy, commerce is supposed to be, would be a great, you know, outpost. Uh, But for several decades, speculators and developers had been trying to develop the land to no success. And so when the Mormons came around these speculators thought hey there here's a chance for us to finally unload this wanted land on the Mormons and the Mormons are like hey there's this land that no one else really wants and we can kind of start over again and Illinois seems to be willing to work with us and sure we're close by Missouri but they felt that a they were going to make their own provisions to uh, have better self-defense this time and b Illinois is, you know, a sworn enemy of Missouri, so they're going to do all they can to protect us as well. So even though they're only 15-20 miles away from Missouri, uh, they felt they were safe. Now, later they might regret that a bit, as we'll discuss, that Missouri does not go away, Uh, but at the time they felt that uh, their new surroundings was going to serve as an impenetrable barrier.
1: Yeah, the, the the definitely something that comes along is the idea, and I picked up on that especially as I was reading through the book. That yeah, Missouri never really leaves the Mormons or Joseph Smith alone, and it's kind of stark to think about how often they are calling upon Illinois to bring him back to Missouri to answer to various charges. But something else that's kind of interesting with the as I was going through the book, you know, in the development of that community of Nauvoo you know, so much of prior experience, both in Missouri and even in Ohio, really dictates how not only the community develops, but also, you know, rules within the church, rules within the community. You know, how did this Missouri experience influence the growth of the church, but also of Nauvoo?
2: Oh, very much so. I'd actually argue that uh, much of Nauvoo was developed in a particular way in response to their experience in Missouri. And I'll give a few examples. Um One, they believed that they were uh unable to form a, a self defense against the missouri uh militias and mobs or however you want to define it. so the first thing they did in Nauvoo when they created a new city is they developed a very powerful uh, uh military force which they called the Nauvoo Legion, which actually had a a standing force that was nearly as big as the uh, federal army at the time now granted that sounds bigger than it was because the federal army was pretty small in 1840s America, Uh, but they believed that this Nauvoo Legion was going to be their best defense at any attacks against them. Um, Second, they tried to install political and legal measures within the city of Nauvoo that was going to protect the saints and especially Joseph Smith against any threats uh, against them legally or politically or so forth. So they they wanted to make sure that they can build as many barriers as possible so that Missouri would never be able to get them. Because Joseph Smith, I don't think I'd mentioned yet, was actually imprisoned in Missouri and had spent six months uh, over that winter of 38, 39 until he escaped during a changing of, 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 of jails. Um, and so he did not want to repeat that. And so they set up as many, so they had military barriers. Now they're going to have legal barriers. And third, they wanted political barriers. One of the reasons things failed in Missouri was they were not able to draw on you know, state political parties and the state's elite for their redress. And so in Illinois, they were gonna play the political game. They were gonna get politicians on their side. They worked with the different parties to make sure that uh, those parties were looking out for their interests because in Missouri, they had a governor out to get them. In Illinois, they wanted to make sure that the governor would protect them. So all of these different measures that the Saints are taking in Nauvoo directly related to addressing what they thought the failings were in Missouri.
1: And how did the town and the community of Nauvoo flourish really in those first few years there alongside the Mississippi River? I mean, we're talking about land no one wants, you know, what is the town like, let's
2: say in 1843, 1844? Yeah, by the time they meet their climax in about 1844-45, they have nearly 20,000 Mormons living in the in the region, which would have been larger than Chicago at the time. Now Chicago was still growing. It wasn't uh, what it was a, a decade later, but it was the largest uh, city in Illinois. And so they, even though the primary economic uh, a- a activities was land speculation, because they had lots of immigrants coming in all the time. So land uh, sales was going to drive their economy, but they had, you know, uh, boot shops and and, and bakeries, gun shops, um, it was a, and and they were able, had several stores that they would import goods from St. Louis and uh, other regional uh, hubs. And so it was, and they had broad plans for what they want to do. At one point, they wanted to, dig a canal along Main Street in and, Street and Nauvoo, because Main Street started at the northern end of the peninsula and ended at the southern end of the peninsula. And they're like, well, what if we dig a canal that cuts through that? So then boats can go all the way through Nauvoo, kind of like as in Venice or something, or in uh, other European cities that have uh, the rivers going right through uh, the primary city. And that's going to help our commerce as well. So it was a very... Um, uh, de- I can't say successful, because they were still in their early stages, but it was at least a very vibrant city with lots of people um, living in still temporary homes. Sometimes you get a misperception when you go to, if you were to go to Nauvoo today, which has been recreated by the Mormon church to be kind of a missionary uh, historical site, and you see lots of these beautiful brick homes. Back then, most of the people would have lived in small temporary wooden shacks. They were coming in without much money, and so it wasn't a very successful and rich town yet, but it was definitely very vibrant and lively.
1: Now one thing you brought up a little bit ago was kind of the attempt for you know state protection, you know political power in one ways um, and the Mormons, when they get to Navoo, certainly call upon officials you know you in the book you referenced Stephen Douglas as an example of someone who's trying to make his way early on and trying to court voters, but there's also as you're going through the book, too, uh, the feeling that there is a fear of government going back to low lowborn Boggs. So the, the one thing that stuck out to me was the 1844, you know, presidential campaign of Joseph Smith. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about that campaign and really how it, you know, talks about and reveals not only Smith's views but also perhaps the Mormon view at large about their place in American democracy.
2: Yeah. On the one hand, the Mormons had lost faith that state governments can be the be-all end-all of power, because in Joseph Smith's words, what happens when the governor is the head of a mob, which is how they viewed Lowbron Boggs. So they actually started developing this robust form of federal power in their political imagination. They sent several petitions to the national government uh, asking not only to redress the wrongs that were done in Missouri, but to use some federal use federal power to protect their interests. And they're making arguments that were pretty novel at the time, because in 1840s America, Jacksonian America, everything was about local control. Everything was about state power. This was the era of states' rights. The idea of the federal government uh, being sovereign and protecting the the constitutional rights of the individual citizen that's not something that really becomes enshrined until after the civil war and and the reconstruction uh, amendments but the mormons were arguing that the federal government needs to serve as a dispassionate umpire willing to step in when circumstances in the different states were not willing to uh listen to the rights of minority groups because when we live in a world that's dominated by majoritarian will the voices of the minorities are trampled to the side. Now, they didn't always trust the people in charge of the federal government, especially when the federal government refused to intervene. And so finally in in 1844, after Joseph Smith and the Mormons had sent letters to the five men who were the leading candidates for the presidential campaign, uh, and all five candidates uh, were not willing to step in and help the Mormons, Uh, they decided, well, why don't we have our own man run for the presidency? And Joseph Smith was nominated as the Mormon candidate uh, for the White House. I'm not convinced they thought Joseph Smith had a great chance, but at the very least, they thought as a protest candidate, it would be a great way to spread their message to America. And they sent several hundred, what they called electioneering missionaries throughout the country, holding state nominating conventions. They were gonna have a, a national nominating convention in Baltimore, which is also where the Whigs and the Democrats held their national convention that year. And they believed that, you know what, we're gonna play this political game. Joseph Smith is killed before, um, the actual election happens, And ironically, he was the first American presidential candidate to be killed in a campaign. Um, But it shows that Mormons were both hoping for a stronger uh, federal intervention, but also skeptical that the government itself will help. And so maybe they thought we would have to do it ourselves. Now, the
1: kind of the the subtitle of your book, you know, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire uh, with Nauvoo, We've come to the fall in many ways and the death, as you mentioned, of Joseph Smith there in 1844. You know, what contributes to that death, to his death in 1844? And, you know, what happens with Mormon leadership? You know, who fills that power vacuum? And what happens to Nauvoo in the
2: aftermath of all that? Joseph Smith was at his high point that final year in 1844. He was mayor of the city. He was the chief judge. Uh, He was a postmaster. He was uh, appointed king of of this new secretive theocratic council, the Council of 50. Um, And as he accumulated more and more power, it terrified those around him. And there was both an internal and an external part of this dissent. Externally, those outside of Nauvoo were growing increasingly worried that Joseph Smith had unchecked power because politicians in the state were catering to Joseph Smith's whim because they wanted the Mormons' votes. The Mormons voted in block. Joseph Smith would declare before an election, the Mormons should vote for so-and-so, which the Mormons would then do as a way to make sure that the politician would listen, listen to Mormon interests. Those outside of Nauvoo thought that that was a corruption of the democratic system. That's you know taking away the individual conscience and replacing it with a priesthood mandate. That's exactly what you know. separation church and state was supposed to stop. Further, Joseph Smith had seemed to be able to shield himself from any legal attempts to take him into custody. Three times during their stay in Nauvoo, Missouri tries to extradite Joseph Smith back to the state for trial, twice related to uh, crimes during the 1838 Mormon-Missouri War. And then once after Lilburn Boggs had an assassination attempt on his life and people said, well, Joseph Smith must have orchestrated it. So. Uh, Missouri wanted to bring Joseph Smith back for trial. The Mormons thought that as soon as Joseph sets foot back in Missouri, he'd be killed. So they used what we'll call creative uh, legal measures to try to protect him. Um, And all of this, all of these ingredients combined into a recipe in which Joseph Smith seemed to have all this power. And he was, in the words of those of his neighbors, above the law. And so you have these external people outside of Nauvoo worried that Joseph Smith is a true threat to our democratic system. Internally in Nauvoo, there is a growing number of dissenters who worry that Joseph Smith is going too far, both in terms of polygamy, his secret uh, marital practice of having multiple wives, which was becoming increasingly known and gaining increasing enemies, as well as those who believed that Joseph Smith was gaining too much power himself and that he was, you know, corrupting what the Mormon message was. Eventually on June 7th, 1844, these dissenters gathered together and started their own newspaper which they called the Nauvoo Expositor because they were going to expose all of Joseph Smith's secret dealings. Joseph Smith saw this expositor as a direct threat, just like what had happened in Missouri, where there was this, you know, internal dissenters combining with external agitators that resulted in the Mormons being kicked out of Missouri. And Joseph Smith didn't want to go through that again. So Joseph Smith orger, ordered the Nauvoo expositor's press to be destroyed, which they did. This led to a standoff between Nauvoo and those around them because the dissenters immediately fled to their non Mormon neighbors and pled for help. And eventually this led to Joseph Smith being arrested and taken to jail. But even when Joseph Smith was held in state custody, uh, being held in the county jail, um, the neighbors were, were, were worried that he still wasn't going to be brought to justice because they've seen, again, three times when Joseph Smith was arrested to be extradited back to Missouri and him finding some political or legal loophole. And so while he's held in jail, the non Mormon neighbors gather together in a mob, storm the jail, and kill Joseph Smith and his brother in cold blood because they believe that the democratic system was not going to be able to sustain such a uh, dangerous threat, which I always find ironic because in the end, they came to the same conclusion Joseph Smith did in seeing democracy as too uh, fragile, as too fallible. And that they had to take justice in their own hands. And that's why I end up calling uh, Kingdom Nauvoo uh, a, a story of democracy and crisis, because both sides of this big crisis came to see democracy as a failure. And then to finish off your, your question there, after Joe Smith dies, there's a spiritual vacuum where they're trying to find someone else who can take over. Um, now, in some ways, Mormonism fractures after Joe Smith dies, and you see. Uh, a number of different traditions who trace their origins back to that point. But the largest number of Mormons end up following Brigham Young, who had been Uh, Joseph Smith's close uh, uh, friend and uh, collaborator, especially for the last few years, had been president of of the governing ecclesiastical body, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and he was very domineering. And just like Joseph Smith had learned from his Missouri experience, Brigham Young learned from Joseph Smith's death and said, I'm not going to brook any dissent. I'm not going to, you know, play around with the government. We are going to hold a much more firm stance, which eventually leads to them leaving America, organizing in what was then Mexico territory, the Great Salt Lake, and establishing what they hoped to be a Mormon kingdom.
1: One more question that I do have, Ben, is there is still today there is a part of the Mormon church that is
2: based in Missouri, correct? Correct. One of the different lineages that lead from this um, is was based in Joseph Smith's own family. Joseph Smith's wife, Emma Smith, who I try to spend a lot of time in the book on, um, she was not too happy with polygamy and another of other developments in the church. And she also did not get along with Brigham Young. So when Brigham Young led a large group of the church out of Nauvoo and heading out West, Emma Smith chose not to follow and she kept her children uh, with her. She always believed that church leadership was going to remain within the Smith family and that their children was going to be a leader. Um, within two decades, they end up forming a new Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with Smith's son, the III, as the new prophet. Um, it was actually formed in Nauvoo, although eventually they uh, relocated first to Lamoni, um, Missouri, and then eventually to uh, uh, Independence, Missouri, which is now the headquarters of, uh, of that church, which was renamed a couple decades to go, ago as the Community of Christ. They're the second largest of the different uh, Mormon churches that trace their lineage to Joseph Smith. And what's fascinating, you go to Independence, Missouri today, and just within a few blocks, you can see a half dozen uh, different uh, Mormon religions that all claim that they're the true inheritors of, uh, of Joseph Smith's legacy. Thank you very
1: much for the conversation today. I really enjoyed your book, and I really enjoyed talking about it. And thanks for joining
2: me. It's been an absolute pleasure, Sean.
0: Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our-missouri.